Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach, are we recording? Uh, yeah, I got All us right. up cool. now. Cool. All right. So, Gary, I want to first. I want to thank you for coming on, and I want to either thank you or blame you. I don't know because, you know, you're you're a pretty polarizing guy, and you know, I guess I've become a bit of a polarizing guy as well. And I really, and, I, and I've kind of hinted at this before. I mean, really, what set me on my path of questioning stuff was reading, you know, your book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. You know, so many years ago, I can't remember when it came out. And I've read all of your books, uh, but for me, that one, that that first one was was to me you know, either the best book or the one that just was profoundly impactful on me. And, and it's, it's the best. Well, I mean, I, I think so. But I mean, I mean, and, and it was a very well-written book. It was an interesting argument. But I think the more important thing is, is it just the effect that it has people saying, wait a minute, what we've been told may not necessarily be true. And, and, and the fact that we question where we get our data from. And I think there's a lot of people that are kind of waking up to the fact that nutrition science in general is just not a very good science no. and we've got a lot of problems with that. And we, we, we sit there and try to, uh, you know, make all these proclamations and decisions based on really almost nothing, which I think is just uh, kind of interesting to watch. But um, I, so again, depending on how the next five years go for me, I'll either thank you or blame you. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. I'd go 10 years. Let's go a little longer. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. there's people out there waiting to see if I'm going to die or not. But I mean, as far as, you know, just to see what happens. Well, this is what, you know, it's funny because I was thinking today, one of the points I make in my new book is this absolute lack of curiosity in the nutrition obesity research community. So they have certain beliefs and then, you know, they just, they're just not really curious about what's going on here. And somebody like you, you're, you're supposed to be dead, dude. Oh, I know, I know. My teeth are gone. Yeah, I know. So you th in any other sense, you're like the anomalous observation. You're the, the weird particle that nobody's ever seen before. And in any other science, you should have people crawling all over you with white suits trying to figure out either how you're sneaking broccoli when they're not looking or... You know, why aren't you dead? I mean, where's the scurvy? It's just, that's it. You're supposed to have scurvy. Everything yeah. else we can write off. You are supposed to have scurvy. You're supposed to be dead. If you're an Arctic explorer, you're gone. And they don't, nobody cares. And you're walking around, you're blogging about it, and they don't care. Nobody says, hey, could you come to the lab so we could run some tests? Can we lock you away for three weeks and watch what you eat and, you know, know you're not getting broccoli infusions? Where's the curiosity? What kind of science is it? where you could be living proof of a fundamental belief is wrong and nobody cares. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's, that's the point I make, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly dead and, uh, you know, doing all this stuff from the afterworld. And, and by the way, they have nice prime rib on Tuesdays up here. And so it's kind of a, you know, kind of a funny thing, but tell us, Gary, tell me a little bit about, um, because you, I mean, 
I mean, more than just about anyone out there, you're very polarizing. There's people that really respect what you've done, really like what you've done and, and, and like the curiosity. And then there's people that just hate you. I mean, there's a few and it's, how does, how does that, how does that, how do you deal with that? As somebody who's kind of going through the same thing, how have you dealt with that over the last decade or so that, 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 that's going on? What, how, how, how is that? Uh, well, that started early. Yeah. So I've had almost, I've had about 16 years of practice. Um, yeah. The first time when I wrote, what if it's all been a big fat lie in the New York times magazine? I mean, I was just slammed by people, including some of my friends in the journalism field who just, I had one friend who was very well respected, thought I was one of the three best science journalists in the country until I wrote that article, which disagreed with how she thought and a subject she wrote. And then she accused me of having a brain transplant. Um, you know, the Washington Post nutrition reporter went after me and uh, in an episode that led me to end up, I had to go to the very, the, the managing editor of the Washington Post to get a resolution of this. Um, so I've had a lot of practice and you know, after a while, it's just the people who go after you, the people who bother me are the people who ignore you, which is most of the establishment. That's because those are the people I want to change because I think, right, that they're misunderstanding the cause of obesity and everything else that happens and we're never going to get it right and a lot of suffering and torture is going on because these people think incorrectly. Um, so you want them to care. Everybody else, the bloggers who, you know, the... Twitter sphere. Thank you. Uh, they, you know, people are just going to do what they do. I mean, the ones that really bother me are the ones who write nasty blog posts about me and then pick the single ugliest photo of me they could find on the internet <laughs> <laughs> and use that photo. It's like, dude, I am not that ugly. And I, let's be fair. Um, my wife calls this my Zen master thing. And sometimes she goes, how can you not care what these people are? And, you know, it goes with the business. You can't imply that everybody else is wrong and not have them dislike you for it. Yeah, Gary, um, one thing I wanted to ask you was like, it seems like to me anyway, that like this word, this word science, it gets like this kind of uh, unquestioning type of uh, respect where people don't always look at it and say like, well, what type of science is it? Or like how, how detailed was the science? It's like this all encompassing word versus like you can have poorly done science and very well done science, but someone throws up a scientific study and all of a sudden everyone who looks at it just kind of assumes, I think like that's, that's gotta be right. And in reality, we know that that's not the truth. So like how much of that like kind of establishment like monotony more or less do you think is because of that? Just this like untouchable stuff with like the word science. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. The um, it's funny because my so I come from this background where I was studying bad science. So yeah, my second book was called Bad Science. My first book was about a Nobel laureate physicist who screwed up and discovered non-existent elementary particles. Um, and so I was trained to see bad science everywhere. So it's very easy for me to just say, I don't need to pay attention to these, this study or that study. It's bad science. Everyone does it. You know, there were estimate, when I was growing up, the estimate was that 90% of the studies that are published in the sort of frontline academic research journals are just wrong or meaningless. They do nothing to move science forward. 
And what you're looking for is the 10% that actually means something. Um, in part because of the way we discuss science now, you know, with Twitter and the internet, and every day there's a new study, and every day somebody has to comment on the new study. And if you just say every time a study comes out, mm, that's interesting, I don't really buy it. You know, it's not, there's no news in that. So there is this sort of tendency to overinterpret all the research, and then there's a tendency by the researchers themselves to overinterpret all the research. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, it's, and you're right, I, I was ranting today. There's a new book out by a Cambridge University geneticist who studies the genes of obesity. And if he ever met an obese person in my life, I would be stunned. And yet, because he's Cambridge University, he's an expert. And it's just, why? Uh, I, anyway, I'm mystified by it too, but yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the problem. It's bad science sort of from the top all the way down. Yeah. If I'm you right, know, or, or we're all quacks and Sean, you're <laughs> Yeah, I, I see that. And then I also see like this situation where like the, the science may be perfectly accurate, but it's like this kind of un, un, uh, undoable situation where like, you know, like, well, we, we put these people in a metabolic ward and we fed them this and this happened. It's like, well, that's great. But, you know, given the way society is set up now and our basically limitless uh, options and stuff, it's, and then hyper palatability of foods and things like that, it seems like to assume what happens in a metabolic ward is going to translate to the real world or the field is, is kind of ridiculous too. Um, yeah, although I think if people got the message, if the message was consistent um, and they knew it was right and they could see what happens when people. So, you know, when I, we started the NUSI, the Nutrition Science Initiative, eight years ago, I thought if you could do a few experiments to demonstrate that obesity isn't a energy balance problem, it's a hormonal problem that the research community would suddenly go, oh, cool, <laughs> we, we had it wrong, let's fix everything and do it right now. Um, not only did we learn that the experiments are incredibly hard to do and it's very easy to screw them up um, and people will interpret them based on their preconceptions. So it's like a Rorschach block where you see what you wanna see. Um, I think we also learned that you're, what you said, you can't really you got this Titanic and each little study is a lifeboat or a deck chair and you can't really, it's hard to make any difference in any short term. But what's happening out there is making a difference. You've got suddenly thousands of physicians who are now prescribing these diets. Used to be, when I started, there were maybe, I don't know, 10, five of them had written diet books and they would prescribe low carb, high fat ketogenic diets, not carnivores. Nobody was prescribing pure meat, but maybe they should have been. Um, anyway, and then they, they, people would lose weight and then they'd go see their cardiologist and the cardiologist would say, how'd you lose weight? And they'd say, well, I've been doing Atkins and the cardiologist would almost have a heart attack himself. And then he would tell them to stop and then they'd gain the weight back. Now you've got thousands of doctors who are prescribing these diets and people are losing tremendous amount of pounds and the clinical experience is building up. It's just hard to ignore it. And in type two diabetes in particular, where you've got this chronic disease state that's supposed to just get worse, 
to be, you know, managed with ever higher doses of drugs. And now you've got people reversing that with diet and that alone, that's a huge step. And so I don't think that we're going to change the perspective from the top down, like I hoped to do eight years ago, but I think the perspective is changing from the bottom up. It's getting harder and harder for people to ignore what these diets do. So. Gary, yeah, Gary, I mean, one of the things I, I, you know, quickly realized that it's a propaganda war and I also realized the power of anecdote and story. And so I think, you know, like I said, it's, you know, you're, you're beating your head against the wall trying to get the government or these corporations or whatever to buy into this stuff. And I do agree that it's got to be a grassroots effort. But let me ask you, you know, because I've got my book coming out. And one of the one of the arguments I make in the book is, you know, there's so many flaws with nutrition science, you know, we've made so many assumptions, and we've never even tested those assumptions. And so if you could go back 100 years or whenever the start of modern nutrition science went in and said, I want to start over, how would you how would you do it? Or, or is that too hard of a question to answer? <laughs> That's an interesting question. It's funny because the way I think about it is ultimately you're going back to a point at which there was a conflict still. And then you think, okay, we got these two competing hypotheses or five competing hypotheses, however many, which ones have to be refuted because of hard evidence and which ones don't. And then you go forward and you see how the community just jumped on these assumptions. Oh, it's all about calories. That's all we have to know. And part of the trick in doing this, what I've done, right or wrong, is to keep thinking in terms of, okay, well, this is what you assumed, but does the evidence refute it? Does the evidence, you know, then, then now you've got 60 years of thousands and 10,000s of studies, and you're always asking, does the evidence refute the hypothesis that were still viable in the 1950s before you jumped on this assumption? So what I would do, I would go back to the 1960s, which is when things really started going off the rails. And that's when the endocrinologists realized that insulin was driving fat accumulation, that obese individuals were insulin resistant and type 2 diabetics were insulin resistant. And that's when the diet book doctor suddenly hit it big, Atkins, and before him, Herman Taller and the drinking man's diet, and they were pushing very low-carb diets which were based, whether they knew it or not, on this idea that you had a lower insulin. And if you went back to the 1960s and you got the endocrinologists to care about obesity and the effect that diet had on obesity, then they could start doing the science right. Um, and then they could start doing the experiments that we tried to do 50 years later with NUSI, but from a perspective where, no, where you don't have this built-in dogma and this built-in perceptions. Like one of the problems I have trying to, uh, get people to care. For instance, I was recently invited to a Banbury conference at Cold Spring Harbor. And I'd like to say that this is because I'm so well known in the field, but it's also because the new chief something officer at that at Cold Spring Harbor is an old college football teammate of mine who knows my stuff. But there's it's a whole group of people who all they care about is uh, the, uh, you know, neurogenetic effects of what drives appetite, you know, neurobiology of appetite. And I interviewed about a third of these people in the course of my research. I know how they think, and they wanted me to come in because I'm not only in my journalist, but I have a different perspective. And I said, but the problem is I'm going to get there. And the implication of everything I've written is that these people are simply studying the wrong thing. Like they may be learning about what drives appetite, but they're not learning about the relationship with obesity. 
And so the implication is that not only do I think they're all wrong and deluded and doing the wrong thing and wasting their lives, but what they should be doing is 1960s era endocrinology. And they don't do 1960s era endocrinology. They don't care about it. They don't understand it. They know nothing about it. They're doing 2019, you know, 2010 era neurobiology and genomics and proteomics and all these fancy things that they know what they're learning from. And I don't quite understand what they're learning from it. And we speak different languages. I want them to use different tools. I want them to go back in time 50 years. There's no way we can connect in a meeting like this. And then I tried to convince them to take this colleague of mine who at least used to live in that world and speaks that language. But it's sort of, in an ideal world, you would go back to the 1960s and just say, look, now we've got these competing hypotheses. We've got this idea that it's all gluttony and sloth on one hand. On the other hand, we've got this idea that obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder and the hormone driving it primary hormone linking it to diet is insulin. And let's see how we can tease out those two hypotheses to see which one, maybe they're both partly right, although I don't believe it, maybe one dominates. And the kind of experiments that we tried to do with Nusi are the way you do that. Um, back then the field was small, the maybe one-tenth the number of researchers studying it. So if you had learned something significant, it would have stuck wouldn't have been overwhelmed by this noise that we have today. So, but that'll never happen. <clears throat> I'm, I'm some, sometimes optimistic and mostly pessimistic about that stuff. Every once in a while, I see a little glimmer of hope. But, you know, let me, this is one thing I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people, you know, you talk about the hormonal theory of, and we'll call it a theory because nothing's really proven in nutrition, you know, that, that we can say right now. You call it hypothesis. Hypothesis, okay. And obviously there's a lot of evidence in that favor. And there's people that are all, it's all about calories. I mean, I don't think you've ever been told, like if I were to hold you down and force feed you 20,000 calories of whatever, meat, yeah. you know, something, you would, I mean, I think you would concede you would gain weight on that regimen. But again, that's, that's assuming you can overwrite your appetite. Right. I mean, you well, know, like I said, there's you're, you're overriding a hell of a lot of systems when you, right, right. I mean, that's always a question. People, I don't get the question as much now as I used to, maybe because I'm fading from public view, but I'd always get these, you know, what if I ate 5,000 calories a day of meat? And it's a fascinating question. I actually just, there's a blogger uh, the, who's, mostly vegetarian now who's getting his MD PhD and wants to do N of one experiments. And I, I recently suggested this to him as an experiment. And I actually sent him a section from good calories, bad calories, because back in the late sixties, these researchers at Vermont did a study where they tried to fatten convicts by feeding them the Atkins diet. That's how they thought, well, they actually wasn't even Atkins back then because this was before the book. And they couldn't do it. And they said these convicts in the Vermont State Prison would sit there with plates of pork chops in front of them and refuse to eat them after a while. I mean, you'd literally have to hold them down and shove it down their throat to get them to eat it. And one of them said, and I quote in the book, I, I don't think it's possible to get fat on meat. I challenge anyone to do that. So that's, that's an experiment. Challenge them to do it. Let's see what happens if we take 10 people and we give them 5,000 calories of meat a day and make them eat it. First of all, we're, I think it's going to be hard for them to eat it. The first day might, if they're, you know, 
25-year-old man, it might be like a delight, and by the first week, it might be great, and after a while, they're going to start not wanting to eat anymore, but not so much because their appetite centers are being surfeited by hormones like ghrelin or whatever, but perhaps because their periphery is being suffused with fatty acids that's flowing out of their fat tissue and fat in the meat. And, you know, their body is just saying, don't eat. We don't need food. We've got plenty. Um, it's an interesting experiment to do. It's a kind, again, if I had you know, Bill Gates came to me and said, look, Gary, here's a billion dollars and some talented people and the, the laboratory, you know, where we can lock people up and feed, you know, in a nice situation and keep them there for three months. And this is the kind of thing I would do. I was actually fantasizing the other day that maybe to get your PhD in nutrition, part of the job should be you have to serve for a year as a subject in an experiment where we can completely control what you eat and you know, you have to do exactly what's told. But so I don't know, 25,000 calories, I think the gag response would kick in. Um, when I was 21 years old, I could probably do 5,000 calories of meat a day effortlessly, but I could do 5,000 calories of a lot effortlessly when I was 21 years old. I mean, that's basically what we did. Um, the, uh, you know, it's an interesting experiment. But I'll yeah, bet you're, you that. you're probably up close to 5,000 a day, aren't you? Yeah, I can do that easy. I mean, I can eat four, five, six pounds of, of steak a day without, without too much effort. I mean, that's, that's, you know, four is pretty average. So if that's, if that's ribeye, that's four, 4,500, 5,000, something like that, depending on how much marbling is on there. Um, how physically active are you? Well, I mean, I'm pretty physically active. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm getting ready for these rowing world championships. And, you know, so I, I do, you know, I don't, I don't exercise as much as some people think I do. I mean, I, I don't, I really spend more than an hour a day training. So, I mean, you know, I, but, but it's pretty intense stuff. Okay. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not small. I mean, you've met me, Gary. I'm not a little guy. So, I mean, yeah, I've got quite yeah, a bit no, of You should be able to, uh, I mean, I could probably do that, but I would have to work at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I would be surprised if I didn't bulk up and that's some of that. So I put on some muscle and probably some fat under that regime, but I'm forcing myself to eat. And one of the, you know, the points that I make in good calories, bad calories, and that was you know, the way these Europeans thought about it before the sort of young American psychologists took over in the, in the fifties was, you know, there's this kind of intimate relationship between the metabolic fuel available and hunger. So if you've got plenty of fuel available, your body's going to inhibit hunger, um, uh, eating behavior, and you eat that kind of calories of, of non-insulinogenic foods, you're going to inhibit appetite after a while. You know, it's, we, we've got an interesting guest coming on, Gary, in, next week. Actually, no, in two days. Her name is Molly Schuyler, and she is the world champion eater. I mean, she's a tiny female. She's about 120 pounds. And her record, she's eaten 22 pounds of meat in one sitting. And so it's, I, I just think the physiology behind that is going to be fascinating to ask her, you know, what's happening? What's allowing you to override the gag reflex or the, or the you know, suppress? Well, also, I ask her what, if she has been studied. I don't think she has. I've been, you know, if, the, if the government doesn't shut down, this is what I would like somebody like Kevin Hall to do. They have these metabolic chambers at NIH where he works. It's like... Grab a woman like this, because another thing that's not supposed to happen uh, that I find amusing is what's called luxus consumption. So the idea is 
she shouldn't be able to eat 22 pounds of meat unless she's doing it, say, once every two months and she's not eating in between. But if she's eating large portions of food every day, how does she maintain? Well, my, my understanding, we'll, we'll clarify that when we talk to her, but my understanding is, you know, she does these eating challenges once a week or something like that, gets paid to do it. You know, she's the best in the world, beats all the men. And she eats like a regular diet during the week and she maintains her stomach capacity by drinking lot, huge amounts of water. That's what, that's basically my background I've read on her, but I'll, but I'll ask her when we talk about the interview. Yeah, but. just if anyone's even invited her to come to their lab so they could study, like, yeah. what, is, what is this woman's metabolic rate? How much is she burning? You know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because I think, you know, when I read some of the historical accounts of people like Mongolians, they would routinely eat 10 pounds in a sitting, you know, or anyone would eat four to eight pounds a day or the Lewis and Clark edition expedition, they're eating nine pounds of meat a day. I mean, all these historical accounts, you, you can't really verify it, but you've got these little glimpses. Well, and the Lewis and Clark thing is reliable. I mean, this is funny. We were talking about how bad nutrition science is. Um, back when I was uh, writing research in good calories, bad calories, and I may get the numbers wrong here, but um, there was a story that said, the, the leading expert on metabolism at the time had come out of Harvard, and he was telling me that humans cannot digest more than two pounds of protein a day. I think that was the maximum. And then I went to the, there's a, a huge two-volume government report of dietary recommendations, and in there, they didn't have the two-pound limit for protein, so I caught up the authors who ran the protein section. I remember one of them was at Stony Brook, and he said, yeah, we were going to put down the two-pound number, but then we had the Lewis and Clark expedition where it's documented that they were feeding them, you know, however many, like six pounds or nine pounds of meat a day is their allotment. And yeah, they were, you know, they're working hard because they're walking across the country without a good highway system at the time. Um, but clearly, humans could metabolize enormous amounts of meat. Um, and is there any reason to think that they weren't eating them when it was available? Another one of my favorite stories was um, it was a, a New Zealand anthropologist who did some work with Aborigines in Australia. Michael Pollan talked about this in his in, in Defense of Food. She took these Aborigines from the city where they all were getting fat and had diabetes, and she moved them back to the bush and um, had them live their original Aboriginal life and. She was telling me about how one day, <clears throat> you know, they hunt down a kangaroo and they kill and they, she watched them each eat six pounds of meat at one sitting. And then about 20 minutes later in the interview, she says, you know, the thing with an Aboriginal diet is you can't overeat on it. And I said, well, wait, 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 20 minutes ago, you told me that you watched these people, these men eat six pounds of meat in one meal. And now you're saying you can't overeat on the diet. You're going to have to reconcile those two statements with what does it mean to overeat if every time they went hunting, they could eat six pounds of meat and they could, you know, and you again, know people don't really think about it. Well, I think in practice, what happens is that it's not hungry again for 24 hours or 36 hours or something like that. I think that's what happens in practice. When I do that, when I, and I've gone to these, all you can eat Brazilian places and, and they don't, they don't make money on me. I go in there and clean them out and then I may not eat for a day or two. You know, I'm just like, it just works that way. And I think, yeah, but now if the meat was available the next day, would you eat it? And once probably, you no, probably not. I mean, I, and I think, you know, if we go back and again, this is all speculation, obviously none of us have time machines, but you know, if we look at the environment that man 
sort of evolved in, this was a time when there were lots and lots of big animals everywhere. I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. what the paleozoologists will tell us. You know, the average, this is an interesting fact, there's a guy named Felisa Smith out of the UNM. I'm trying to get her on the show, but I can't get a hold of her. But she's published a paper saying that the average size of a mammal today, you know, if we look at all animals out there, all right. you know, we average the size of elephants and mice, and we, we, we make up a composite animal, it'd be about 20 pounds. 50, 100,000 years ago, the average size of an animal was 1,100 pounds. And so that tells you the amount of animal quantity that was around. And there was a lot less people, and it wasn't hard to kill these animals. Well, this is, I'm going to tell you two stories that are relevant, neither one of which got into good calories, bad calories. So one was from an African uh, a zoologist, I think his name was Schaller, pretty famous person who back in the late 60s decided to take a walk through the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the African steppes and in effect, uh, uh, you know, uh, act as though they were hunter-gatherer. It's a hunter-gatherer population and see how many calories they could gather over the course of 24 hours. And the conclusion was, in effect, the, the two of them, two men and two men, pretending they had spears as weapons, would have gathered 65,000 calories worth of food over the course of a day <laughs> for just the two of them. And the similar story was a, a memoir I read of, uh, uh, by a Swedish uh, anthropologist who, or naturalist who lived with Aborigines in Australia in the, in the mid to late 19th century. And he was talking to an Australian uh, cattle rancher, and uh, they call them cattle stations. And this guy had told him, again, if I'm remembering correctly, that he had killed 300,000 marsupials over the last year. I mean, it was something, again, it was, I kept thinking, wait, that's, must have been 90,000, because I figured it out, it was about three, it was 300 a day. And basically, all this guy did was ride around his cattle ranch and kill animals. And even if he was exaggerating by a factor of 10, you could imagine that the aboriginal tribes never went short of food. And yet, obesity is a relatively modern Obesity, in, in, at the extent that we see it today, is a new, a new invention. Yeah, we, we had a Mickey Bandora on the show a while back, and he was telling us about how, like, I think some people have a misconception of just some of the megafauna even, where, like, you think of these big woolly mammoths, like, well, how many men would it take to go and hunt that thing down? And they're, in their mind, they're thinking, like, 30 to 40 guys with spears and bows and arrows just chipping away at this thing all day. And, and he's said, no, it's like a couple people, you know, one will go up and sever the Achilles tendon and then the thing won't be able to move. And then it's just one of them driving a spear into the thing. And it's uh, like the amount of food you would get from a, from a mammoth is, is going to feed your tribe for a while. Well, this is Weston Price tells that story in uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, where um, he's he goes to, to, to see pygmy tribes in deepest, darkest Africa, and I hope I'm not using socially unacceptable language. Um, and he tells a story about how the pygmies used to kill elephants. And you're reading this thinking, this is like the craziest thing I've ever heard. And it's that they sneak up behind them and, 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 and yeah, so through their, uh, saw through their hamstrings, because apparently they don't feel it. So they hamstring the animals and then they can't move and then they could kill them at their leisure. Um, and then you turn the page and there's a picture of Mrs. Price, you know, Weston Price's wife, and she's got her khaki skirt on and a pith helmet. She's standing next to two, you know, uh, uh, dark-skinned men who come up to her 
you know, middle of her chest and they're holding these enormous tusks and you think, okay, maybe I'll believe the hamstringing the elephant story. But um, yeah, we tend to think when we think about and I saw this a lot when I did my research for good calories, bad calories, that people thinking about how hard it would be to get food for hunter gatherers would think in terms of like, boy, if I was stranded in the woods of Vermont and how, how hard would it be for me to eat? Not if I evolved in the woods of Vermont in the way they used to be 200 years ago and I evolved in a tribe of hunter-gatherers and this is all I did, how easy it would be. Um, Jared Diamond tells a great story that he misinterprets in Guns, Germs, and Steel about a group of British explorers who go out into the desert in Australia and I think they were going to watch the eclipse maybe in 1917 and they're starving to death and they lose all, they get lost and they've lost all their food and they've lost all their 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 dying of thirst and a tribe of aboriginals come and they beg them they'll trade them like you know clothing and watches and stuff for food and the aboriginals say fine and they disappear for a day and they come back in the middle of the desert and they bring them plenty of food and plenty of water and even fish and you think you know clearly these people are extraordinarily well adapted to survive in those environments such that they always had plenty of food available um and that food was usually uh, animals, animals and fish in this case. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, the, the mistake we often make is we look at these modern indigenous tribes, the ones we've had access to for the last hundred years or so that we can observe. That is, that is probably a watered down version of, of the, the climate that they had, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago. But let me, let me- Well, the reason also, the reason they've been allowed to remain indigenous tribes is because they're living in environments so inhospitable that we haven't, you know, our white privilege, we haven't moved in and taken it over. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're on the fringe and still making it work. Let me ask you, Gary, because this is something that I always, I I just, it kind of baffles me because we talk, we hear the people that say it's all about calories and what they'll often, the caveat they'll always say is when protein is, you know, equated that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fat or if it doesn't matter if it's carbohydrates. So my question becomes, well, what about protein? I mean, you know, do protein calories not count the same as other calories? How do, how do the cognitive dissonance to say that protein is a different macronutrient and it affects the body differently, but somehow fat and carbohydrates, there's no way they can affect the body differently. How do that, how do you reconcile that statement or that, that sort of line of thinking? I mean, just that line of the, yeah, I, but how can you, I mean, this thing's, this harks back to sort of the fundamental question is we've got three macronutrients that do entirely different things to the human body that we metabolize differently. We have entirely different endocrine responses to, and yet somehow they're all supposed to have the same effect on fat accumulation, except as you put a protein, we know is going to have a different effect on lean tissue than fats and carbs. But when it comes to energy and fat accumulation, they have to be identical because somehow the laws of physics dictate this, which they don't. Um, I don't know how anyone could believe that. But as soon as they go to that point, it brings them into this world that's so unfamiliar and has such cognitive dissonance that they immediately step back to where they were originally and just say, this must be true. I mean, again, I, I have to do a debate on the Joe Rogan, you know, in a, in a month. And it's, I guess it's going to be debating whether or not obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. And, and the 
know, the thing I want to get clear is how can we possibly start from the, the idea that these three macronutrients have the same effect? Why would they? You know, we know they differ. It's not just lean tissue, but in diabetes, they have an entirely different effect. So you have to dose with insulin entirely differently if you're taking carbs or eating fat. Why wouldn't you expect these macronutrients to have different effects on fat accumulation? Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Remember to get your discount and free bacon. Type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now back to the show. Hey, can you comment on? I know David Ludwig's study that was part, I think it was part of the NUSI stuff came out recently. I think it was published in what, October, November. And it showed that at least in maintenance phase, it, there seemed to be a caloric difference in people on a low carb versus a higher carbohydrate diet. That's been criticized due to the randomization timing and some of those, some of those things. But what are your, what are your thoughts on that study? And what do you think the implications are? Uh, and what, what else can we expect to hear, you know, from that information? Uh, okay. So, uh... We funded that study. Everything Nusi funded, not everything. The, the, two of the studies Nusi funded directly investigated this question of whether or not we're dealing with, you know, a caloric energy balance disorder, fat, whether or not fat accumulation is, is determined by energy balance, calories in, calories out, or whether it's determined by uh, the hormonal response to the foods we eat or what combination of it. And that experiment, like the, the previous one, the, 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 the Kevin Hall experiment, they were both set up to test this hypothesis in different ways. And one of the problems I have is it tends to be discussed in the concept, in the context of calories, you know, is a, is a calorie a calorie? So, and that's the way it's been argued since the 1960s, and I've always, I think it's the wrong way to discuss it. So if a calorie is a calorie, the question is if we eat... Uh, more carbohydrates and more fat, will we, you know, expend more or f less calories compared to how many we ate? And will we store more or less fat? And it, everything stays in this energy balance context. Um, the correct way to think about it, if I'm right, is um, you have these two competing hypotheses of obesity and the ideal experiments are the experiments that can create a scenario by which the two, two hypotheses make different predictions. So the, in this experiment, you get people to lose some weight and then you get them into uh, 
uh, energy balance, which, um, and then you feed them different diets of different macronutrient content where you fix the protein and flip the carbohydrates and fat from 60, 20 to 20, 60. Is that right? Yeah. Um, 20% protein. Um, if fat accumulation is determined by caloric balance, then you've got a situation where the macronutrient content of the diet shouldn't matter. Only the amount of calories fed should affect their ability to maintain this weight loss. And if fat accumulation is a hormonal regulatory phenomena, and if it's primarily insulin, then the diet with the fewer carbohydrates should make it easier to maintain weight on a higher caloric intake. And if you have a higher caloric intake and you're maintaining your weight, you have to have a higher caloric expenditure. So now you measure expenditure and you manipulate the diet to keep their weight constant. It's just a different way to interrogate this question of whether obesity is being, you know, fat accumulation is being driven by calories or by hormonal responses. Um, and you know, the general answer is they saw what we expected them to see if the hormonal regulatory response is correct. Um, no study is perfect. No study ever gets you an unambiguous result. That's why independent verification is considered one of the pillars of the scientific method. Like, let's do it again and ideally do it again and see if you continue to see the same result. Um, and independent investigators who aren't invested in the you know, one of the two hypotheses being right. But the result was the fewer carbohydrates in the diet, the more energy expended, which is consistent with the prediction that obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder and that the goal is, you know, if you want to keep fat accumulation low, you want to keep insulin low. Um, you know, that's it. It's sort of, should we do another experiment? Well, they're already doing another experiment. One of the arguments that, um, one of the things that amazes me when I see the back and forth on Twitter and on the discussions on this is you can find something to criticize in every study. The question is, is the hypothesis valid or not? Are these competing hypotheses valid? We have this terrible obesity problem in the country. It goes along with the terrible diabetes problem. If we don't understand the cause of obesity, that's a problem. If this alternative hypothesis is still viable, then we should study it. The Ludwig's credit, he's got another $12 million and he's doing another experiment and he's going to try and ask this question, interrogate these two hypotheses better. The critics say, eh, yeah, we don't like this experiment. We're not going to believe it. And enough's enough. And as though there aren't the third of the population, more than a third isn't obese. And so I don't get that attitude, which is we're going to criticize this study but we're not going to do any research because we don't really care or we're not curious or I don't know, fill in the blank. Hey Gary, you your, your most recent book that's out. I know you've got another one in the works, you know, the case against sugar, you know, you, you made a, a pretty, pretty interesting argument about, you know, sugar is a relatively novel food in the human diet, at least in the, in the quantities that we're eating it these days. And, you know, and then it potentially is an addictive substance and you, you know, the, the thing is to just look at any three-year-old, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we've all seen that observation. I've seen it with my kids and, you know, you've got kids and, you know, it's pretty obvious, but there, there has been some recent interest outside of sugar 
in things like processed vegetable oils. And there's a lot of people pointing to that as a competing hypothesis for some of our health issues. What is your sort of uh, thoughts on the fact that, you know, we, we didn't have processed vegetable oils in the diet since the late 1800s, essentially, and, and in any significant quantity since maybe Procter & Gamble lobbied the American Heart Association to include Crisco in the diet in the 1920s. What are your thoughts on that particular substance as far as uh, being a potential driver for some of these health issues? I can give you a firm, I don't know. Um, I was thinking about this with my latest book, and I know, I, you know, my friends, some of my friends believe that, that people I respect and their intelligence I respect uh, believe that processed vegetable oils are playing a major role. They could be. My feeling is you can see the effects of sugar and refined grains in populations that didn't have processed vegetable oils. You know, uh, South Pacific Islanders, uh, Native Americans pre-1940s. Um, there was a, a large, you know, the sort of observation prior to the 1960s that obesity and diabetes and heart disease and hypertension could be attributed to processed grains and sugars. So it's in fact, if you think of it like a, uh, a criminal case, and we're asking, there's a whole series of very similar murders all around the world, and they go back in time 70 years, and some of them predate the spread of processed vegetable oils to those populations, but they don't predate the appearance of sugar and white flour, particularly sugar, then I think sugar's always at the scene of the crime when the vegetable oils aren't. Um, we had a whole lot of populations that, you know, for instance, I think I wouldn't, soy oil worries me, but soy oil is processed soy and soy fats. And we had the Japanese consuming soy well before they had high rate, you know, elevating rates of obesity and diabetes. So there's ways that I see that that hypothesis can be refuted in a way that the sugar hypothesis can't. So my general feeling is if we could find a population that didn't eat sugar, but did eat Crisco, we could see what the effects of Crisco are. <laughs> and disassociate them from sugar. But, and we can find populations that ate sugar, but then eat Crisco, and we see obesity and diabetes in those populations. So the fundamental problem to me is, and this is the argument I make in my book, is you add sugar to any diet, <clears throat> you're gonna have problems. You know, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Uh, vegetable oils on top of that might make it worse. They might cause heart disease when you might not get the heart disease with just the sugar alone. I don't know these quite, you know, these are all, these are the problems with the kind of observational epidemiology that we're sort of doing here, population-wide epidemiology. The other thing that worries me about the vegetable oil hypothesis, <clears throat> and I've said this to my friends, is, you know, I've had to co-write a pay, I co-authored a paper with, for the British Medical Journal with Walter Willett and another epidemiologist on dietary fat. And I basically spent the, and Walter Willett's at the Harvard School of Public Health and he ran the nurse's health study and he's one of the primary proponents that we should all be eating processed vegetable oils, omega-6 fatty acid rich soy oils and canola oil and corn oil. And he does it based on his observational studies that look at 
you know, a population of nurses, for instance, 130,000 nurses, and you see that the healthiest nurses tend to eat more vegetable oils than animal fats. And if the vegetable oils were bad for them, I would expect to see some sign of it in those studies. Um, and I don't. And that doesn't mean that hypothesis is wrong, but it would seem that somehow it could be that these people would be much healthier still if they were eating butter and lard instead of rapeseed oil. And so all we see, we see that, that they're a little bit healthier instead of a lot healthier, but then that's the kind of problem with those trials, who knows? But my expectation is because these people were told to eat vegetable oils and that's what they ate, you would see some kind of negative effect because they like the way they were told to eat carbohydrates and they were told sugar was mostly benign. We see obesity and diabetes. Um, so I don't know what to make of that hypothesis. I feel bad that I don't pay it enough attention. Also, when I look at the clinical trials to test it, they're not that compelling one way or the other to me. It uh, might be. It might, Gary. I think because I think you're 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 debating as a Stefan DNA on on Rogan's show. Is that is that yeah. my understanding? So I think he's written a paper. I think it was 2015 talking about that subject and showing that we're seeing accumulations of omega six fats in the human tissue in greater amounts than we saw you know 30 40 years ago. Let but what disease you, is it causing? That's what well, you know. That's a question. You don't know if it's yeah. if it's causing problems or not. There's some people think it's inflammatory and it's they're more readily oxidized. Yeah, and um, it could be. And well, let me in in the Gary Tobbs diet. Are you eating a lot of Mazzola and Crisco? Is that part of your diet? I mean, that's just, well, that's one of the reasons why I don't care that much about it. Because once you tell people not to eat processed carbs and sugar and not to shop in the middle of the grocery stores, you're not eating that stuff. Right, um, okay. So unless you're, not you're eating cooking it. with, no. You know, I eat like you'd eat with broccoli attached. There you go. Um, <laughs> you wonder how much of that too is kind of a dosage thing as well, where it's like that, like that group of nurses, like how much are they actually consuming? Are they kind of, are they lean individuals to begin with? And there's, are they just not accumulating a lot of excess body fat in general? And, and maybe it's a less of an issue there, where, whereas then you have someone who just kind of throws caution to the wind and shops only in the middle of the grocery store yeah. and they're just getting tons and tons of it. And then it becomes an issue when it's in higher doses. Well, there's two issues there and they're, they're both good ones. One is you can't tell with these studies. So when I say I, I kind of expect it to be there, it's you know, you got this world of epidemiologists who I think are bad scientists, but they're saying, look, from our studies, this stuff associates with health. And I don't know what to make of that, but I would expect it not to. But on the other hand, you also have this stuff that all associates with with lower socioeconomic status. So the person you described is shopping in the middle of the, the grocery stores. There's also somebody who's poor and can't afford to you know, buy the expensive fresh foods on the outside aisles. Um, one of the uh, questions I've always had, even about the trans fat issue, which is, you know, epidemiology implicates trans fats and people have decided this is a hundreds of thousands of lives have been saved. But if you think about who eats trans fats and where they're found, I mean, there are the people who thought they were being healthy, who substituted their butter for margarine. 
but I bet those people tended to be on the lower socioeconomic status or they'd have bought olive oil instead. And then you get trans food, fats and processed foods and fast foods. And so what you've, you're selecting for just by targeting trans fats in those studies, it, you could think of trans fats as like a marker for people who are eating a lot of processed and fast foods. And then you have to ask the question, are these lower socioeconomic status individuals who have a whole lot of reasons are going to have worse health? And what else are they eating with the trans fats? Are the trans fats a marker for going to McDonald's and therefore getting, you know, 24 ounce Cokes with every lunch and you just don't know. And that's why you have to do clinical trials ultimately. Yeah. It's like the same, the same problem is like when you look at the seventh day Adventists and, and say, Oh, look at their living so long and they're healthy and they're vegetarians. And it's like, yeah, but they're doing everything else right too, in terms of health and longevity. And then when you bring in another population like the Mormons and realize they're even outliving the seventh day Adventists on average or something, I think if I'm not mistaken, and they are doing basically the same thing lifestyle wise, but they have meat in their diet too. So it's kind of the same thing as that is like, like which we're looking at it from the wrong angle almost. Well, that's, and this is, you know, every time I hear the blue zones, somebody evoked the blue zones. And I think, my God, here's somebody who doesn't have any clue how to think critically because you have these, it's the way I say it, you've got these, what, Ultimately, what you end up doing with these epidemiologic surveys is you establish what healthy people eat. And in terms of the blue zones, they might be healthy people living in, you know, the Mediterranean or living in some mountaintop in the Caucasus or, you know, pick it. And then you bias what you say they eat to fit your preconceptions. And then you tell everybody else we should eat like they do. But we're not them. You know, we just didn't, we haven't been our ancestors didn't live on a Cretan diet for the past 300 years various intrauterine generational effects have happened such that we're programmed differently than we they are that's why we're larger to begin with you know they don't grow people as big as sean in these blue zone areas so you get this just whole host of people who forgot that just because you observe something and you observe two things in association it doesn't mean that one caused the other yeah, Gary, every time somebody brings up the blue zones, I bring up my own propaganda and say, well, look at Hong Kong. They live longer than anybody on the earth and they, they eat the most meat. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like I understand that that's just a correlation, but it's, a, it's the same amount of, you know, lack of understanding that it takes, but it's just propaganda on either side. Well, hey, me, I mean, me I, I, my, my favorite is the Swiss and the French. With the, I once had an argument with a a uh, nutrition guy at Boston College, I forget his name, but he was trying to convince me that the French actually eat a low-fat diet. And I was like, have you ever been to France, dude? You know, it's just, they don't even eat duck instead of chicken. Right there, you've, you've doubled your fat content. Anyway, I interrupted. Go ahead. I no, would... I was, no, but I was going to say that that's just my response to this Blue Zone stuff. I mean, there's Iceland, there's, you know, there's... Uh... Luxembourg, all these countries that eat bunch, a lot of meat liberal a long time. And so you can just, you know, and, and really the argument is who's wealthy, you know, which country, basically. Which, yeah, yeah, basically, you know, you brought up Walter Willett a little bit ago, and I'm sure you, you're aware of his recent contribution to, to saving the world with this uh, Eat Lancet uh, proposed diet for the world. Uh, do you have any comments on that particular sort of diet that they put out there? Any comments on the, on the method that that was used to, to determine that or anything else that might be of interest? 
I mean, again, it's more, uh, yeah, I do. Let me interrupt for one second. I was just looking up while we were talking. Have you guys interviewed, done, talked to Ted Naiman on your uh Yeah, we had, Ted, we had Ted on uh, about, what, six months ago, Zach? Yeah, I think he was episode, like, 20 or so, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, we had him on. Yeah, good. he was a, good, he was a good, good interview, though. Did he talk about his upbringing in the Seventh-day Adventist church? I think he, I know I've heard him talk about that. I can't remember if he talked about it on our show or not, but yeah, I know he, he was, he was, he was, he was trained at Loma Linda and, you know, was, yeah. you know, in, in that stuff and thought it was, uh, and, and, you know, said he was worse, worse health he'd ever been in, you know, following that sort of. Guideline. But it is true that people who, who treat their bodies like temples, who consider it their religious duties to be pure and treat their bodies with only pure foods and substances are going to be healthier, whether those substances include meat or not. Uh, as for the, yeah, Walter Willett and this Eat Lancet study, um, I mean, it's interesting because, again, I so the BMJ had us do a study on uh, a paper on fat that I was invited to be a part of. And um, uh, so the lead author was an epidemiologist at the Cambridge University. And then uh, Walter and I were the other two authors. And the idea was to put people together who had different perspectives and see what kind of compromise we came to. And then I... Uh, uh, we brought in Ron Krauss to be our fourth author, and I thought Ron would nicely balance Willick because he's an experimentalist. He's not an epidemiologist. And Walter would take him seriously. But basically, you know, I felt like I spent a year of my life saying to Walter, well, no, we can't say this because that's not true, and we can't say this because that's not true. And no, just because you're 131,000 nurses saw an association between uh, mo eating a mostly planned diet and health doesn't mean that that's causal and that we should all eat mostly planned diets and know the, the uh, Predimed study of, you know, which showed that a Mediterranean diet was healthier than an American Heart Association low fat diet, which might have showed it. I don't actually believe it did. Um, you can't use that as evidence for mostly planned diet because actually the Mediterranean diet advice allowed for more fat, more meat in it than the American Heart Association. And it was a sort of a series of going through this for a year in which, um, you know, I felt that uh, Professor Willett just wanted to had come to a kind of scientific endeavor where you just, you interpreted any evidence that could support your position in a way that it could support your position. And that to me isn't science. So then when they turned around to do this Eat Lancet study and Walter's the lead author, if nobody's playing the role that I did, which is the person saying, no, you can't say that, no, you can't say that, then it all gets said and you look at that paper and it's all in there with, um, you know, basically we should all eat mostly plants or all plants because healthy people or healthy nurses tend to eat mostly plant diets or more plants than unhealthy nurses. Um, what worries me about all this more than anything is you're, you're telling an entire world to change their diets and you're telling them to eat in a way that, you know, by the, historically we've never done. No populations have been vegetarian populations if they had any meat available. I mean, they always had some kind of animal products available. They basically, throughout our knowledge of, you know, prehistory, hunter-gatherer populations ate as much animal products as they could. 
Um, and now you're telling them that somehow this is bad for us and we should all change our diets. And it's not just that people will do this unthinking, but parents will raise their children this way. You know, like it's one thing for you to say, I eat all meat and I'm pretty healthy and I think other people should. It's another thing for government to say that or a prominent medical journal to say that. And then you get people who take it too far. Like if I hadn't met you, I would think, Jesus, I, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I say saturated fat isn't bad for you. And the next thing I know, there are people out there eating nothing but ribeyes. It's like, that's crazy. But it's fine for you to do it. But I hope you're giving some vegetables to your kids. And don't tell me if you are or not. Um, you know, it's sort of, you can take things to, people will take things to extreme. Harm can be done. And the reason you do clinical trials is to find out what the harms are. You know, you could kind of see the benefits anecdotally and you could assume like, okay, I'm 30 pounds lighter than I was because I don't eat carbs, but maybe I am going to die next week from a heart attack because I eat butter. You do a clinical trial to give you some probabilistic understanding of whether that's true. If you just tell people to eat because this is what your observational surveys saw, and that to me is a kind of medical malpractice and dangerous. And we won't find out how dangerous it is for 10, 15 years as people are raising children without animal products in their diets and assuming this is a, you know, they should, they have some more, uh, you know, an ethical responsibility to the world or to you know, the environment or to the animals that they don't have to their own children. So it, it worries me. Yeah, I, I mean, I echo that concern, Gary, and that's one of the reasons, you know, and certainly I, I certainly don't tell everybody that everyone needs to eat all meat. I think it's an option. It seems to help a lot of people with certain medical conditions, certainly. And my kids, while they eat a lot of it, they eat other food as well if they want to. But I certainly yeah. make them fill up on meat first and then they want to eat. I mean, that's the thing I want to try and get across in this book I'm writing is that, you know, for 50 years, this ketogenic diets, low carb, high fat diets have been treated as quackery that you weren't supposed to do. You still see articles coming out saying new studies shows that, you know, ketogenic diets could cause depression. It's like, okay, but tell people that if they go on a ketogenic diet, wonderful things might happen to them. And depression might be a side effect. We could do it like the commercials on television for pharmaceuticals late at night. And we could have five minutes of a you know, very fast-talking uh, announcer giving all the possible side effects of a ketogenic diet or a carnivorous diet. But the benefits may be remarkable. And if you don't allow people to experiment with themselves, I mean, I assume if you switch to a ketogenic diet and you get very depressed, you'll switch off of it. Like if I went eating, you know, we've talked about it uh, privately. I would love to explore eating nothing but meat as an experiment for a month or two to see what happens. How do I feel? I mean, I'm not the most emotionally stable guy in the world. Maybe it'll be, you know, better than Prozac. But I assume that if I do it and I start feeling like crap, and I can't power through, let's say we have a hypothesis that, okay, sure, you're going to feel like crap for a week, but then you're going to protein adapt and be fine. You know, if that doesn't happen, then I, I hope I have enough sense to go back to eating my green vegetables with my meat, you know, but it's sort of, you can't, some of this is common sense, but you've got to know that this is an option. And it's for some people, apparently an exceedingly healthy option. 
Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Gary, let me ask you, I mean, when you look at the overall like nutrition science and people trying to tell us what to eat and, 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 and you know, there, there are, you know, admittedly not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of nutrition studies have been published throughout the history of, I mean, you, you can find a study support, anything. How is the average person, you or I, or, you know, our sister or some, some Joe off the street supposed to know what the hell they're supposed to eat. How would you tell someone to figure out what, what, what should you eat? Uh, you mean other than listen to us? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, again, this is the challenge of this book I'm writing. So um, every diet book does the same thing, including, you know, books that we don't think of as diet books, like Michael Pollan's book, In Defense of Food. It's, there's so much confusion out there. There's so many studies every day you're told something different. It's really confusing, but actually it's really simple. And I'm now going to explain to you how it's simple and why I'm right. And then, that, then the book goes on from there. And then on some level, that's what every diet book has to do. I'm sure on some level, that's what yours is doing. It's like, you know, it may be, this is why I'm right about a small section of the problem, or this is why I'm right about, um, that's what I'm trying to do in this book. So I have an approach that I hope will suck people in. And stick, uh, uh, I argue in this book that one of the problems is a very simple message, carbohydrates are fattening, was uh, made complicated by the fact that the medical community had the wrong approach. They said it's all about energy, and so they left the right approach to the diet book doctors, and every diet book doctor has to add something new. You can't just say do what Atkins said you should do or Atkins couldn't say do what Taller said you should do. So you've got to add something new, some new shtick that you've developed, you know. Um, and so you start adding layers of complication on top of the simple message, which is don't eat carbs and replace it with fat. Um, and you can do that eating all meat. You could do that eating vegan. It's, you know. Anyway, so it all gets complicated. And then people like me come along. Then the the... the experts just say look out all this crap and we you know they just look at the complications and they treat each diet as different so south beach is somehow fundamentally different than protein power which is fundamentally different than sugar busters and they're all different than atkins and they're all basically the same thing and it just spins all this noise gets generated and then people come along and say now i'm going to cut through the confusion and tell you what the truth is and so my version of my added value is I'm going to cut to the truth better than anyone else because I'm a journalist and I understand the history and I'm going to try to include your truth in it because I think your truth fits that truth. But it's sort of how is anyone supposed to make sense of this? Um, you know, again, I just was alerted today by the, to this new book by this Cambridge University geneticist gene eating, it's called, the truth about nutrition and obesity, something like that. And because he's at Cambridge University and you and I are not, he supposedly has the truth and we don't. Now, I ordered his book and I ordered it used because I didn't particularly want him to benefit. Um, but I read reviews and I read quotes from him and basically he thinks obesity is about how much you eat and calories in and people will be thinner if they learn to walk away from their place hungry. Gary, I mean, I, I find that hungry people don't do well. 
Yeah, neither do I. That would yeah. be my interpretation. It's like the last thing you want to do is be hungry. Can you, I mean, you know, this, and this is a thing that I find this, you know, this genetic approach to obesity or disease in general. I mean, do we have a genetically predisposed ancient civilization that was morbidly obese? I mean, does that exist? I mean, is that part of our human genome or is that just, I just don't, you know, I, I, I don't see, you know, making it that, that complicated that you've got to eat for your, your blood type or eat for your genome or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, do, do giraffes have to do that? Do zebras have to do that? How does that work? Yeah, well, no, and I, 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 I again, the ancient civilization thing, you don't know because we weren't there. And it's hard to see obesity on skeletal remains, although maybe they have a way to, I don't know, measure that. Um, the, uh, yeah, it shouldn't be that complicated. I mean, it, it just shouldn't be that complicated. The, um, I mean, you know, we're just, we've got the uh, century of just terrible science and uh, not very bright people. That's the other thing. I mean, I hate to, this is, you know, one of the conclusions I came to do in my research is basically you've got a whole world of people, the smartest guy in the room when we were growing up, like when you were in high school and I was in high school, the smartest kid in the room didn't want to be a nutritionist. And until the 1970s, obesity wasn't even a legitimate area of research. I mean, the NIH didn't fund it until beginning around mid-1970s. So it's sort of, you ended up with these doctors and, you know, people who were sort of, you know, if you were a woman and you became a dietitian, and if you were uh, not, if you weren't, you know, the smartest guys in the room wanted to go to Wall Street or they wanted to become physicists or astronauts or... Yeah, they just didn't want to go into nutrition science. Nobody, they just didn't do it. And you got this sort of second, third rate intellects who weren't trained to be researchers in any really, you know, science takes this kind of mentorship from a good, to be a good scientist, you need to have been trained by a good scientist. To be a great scientist, for the most part, you need to have been trained by a great scientist. You had to learn in there, you know, sort of rigorously watching how they think, what they do, and then being kind of inculcated in that relentless skepticism. And none of that was translated in this nutrition world. It might have existed in pre-World War II Europe when nutrition was still kind of a part of biochemistry. But once after the war, you had these young doctors and young nutritionists sort of creating science from scratch without any of this skepticism. And so you have sort of second-rate intellects who don't know how to do science creating a whole field of science. Remember I told you I grew up studying pathological science. My second book was on this subject, cold fusion. And cold fusion was this lunatic idea that came out of the University of Utah and Brigham Young University. And the proponents were, you know, just not very good scientists. You know, they were, they were third-rate academics who were hoping to make a name for themselves. And it's as though in nutrition, those type of people were the ones procreating in the 1960s. And then you end up with their ancestors flooding the field of science. They taught the next generation of bad scientists who taught the next generation of bad scientists to the point where people are simply incapable of thinking critically. You're gonna you're gonna piss off a lot of nutritionists, Gary. Um, but I think so. <laughs> As I'm doing this, I'm thinking, oh, geez, I am gonna regret. But let me, you know, because it's it's interesting because you know we have this quote unquote science 
you know, particularly with regard to nutrition, much of it, and most of it is epidemiologic science, which, you know, I would argue like you probably do that it's probably not very helpful. And, but now we have the phenomenon of every single person on the internet can pull up a PubMed study and, and flaunt the science. And it's like, it's not even real science. And so I always sit there and it's just like, I'm almost like just look in the damn mirror and you're going to get more information than you are from spending six hours on PubMed. I mean, I don't know that. Well, this is what, you know, I often, uh, yeah, I complain about this a lot, but again, these are the people we're seeing because we're seeing the people engage with us on Twitter. So we're living in a very small world of people who want to play a role. And I can't complain about that totally because I'm part of the reason why that phenomenon exists. You know, here's a journalist who comes along and because of the internet and PubMed, he can, and the fact that I'm a journalist, I could suddenly do all this research. I could pretend I'm a scientist and then I could write a big book about it and I can have a hypothesis and then, you know, so I can't really complain when other people do the same thing. My problem is I don't think they do it very well, but then on the other hand, they don't think I do it very well. <laughs> so it's sort of, but it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all noise. It's like we're generating noise. None of it really means anything. And this is what, you know, you're trying to say to your readers and I'm trying to say to mine is, look, this is all, you can't, you cannot believe any of this stuff. I mean, I believe most of the stuff in the textbooks because I think vaguely, you know, and like I believe that insulin drives fat accumulation because I kind of trusted the scientists who determined that back in the 1960s. And I'm assuming that it was pretty easy to determine, even though I know nothing about their methodology. I never bothered to look because I figure I won't understand that even if I did. But that becomes textbook science. So I say I could kind of trust that textbook science. But just try eating this way. Like if you have a disorder, if there's something broken, whether it's 100 pounds of excess fat or it's type 2 diabetes or it's manic depression or it's try switching the fuel your body runs on and sees what happens. And you, people can do that. And so the role, all we're saying is try it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point you brought up at the beginning of the show, the fact that, you know, I still have all my teeth and haven't died from scurvy. I mean, that very fact alone is enough to, you know, basically cast doubt upon the entire field of nutrition, in my view, because the fact that I'm not dead, you know, is just shocking to me. And like I said, not only is it shocking, they don't care. There's nobody in nutrition science who's reached out to you and said, you know, this goes against everything we were taught, right? Scurvy is a uh, vitamin C deficiency disorder caused by the absence of fresh fruits and vegetables in a diet. Here's a guy who doesn't eat any fresh fruits and vegetables. Ergo, he should have scurvy. Let's study him. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sneak, secretly sneaking the broccoli as, as people might suggest. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when Stefanson and uh, what's his name? His buddy Anderson, Anderson yeah. back in 1928, they did this experiment. So they're fed on, they eat nothing but meat for a year. They do not die of scurvy, despite predictions to the contrary. And then when Dubois, uh, when uh, uh, Stefanson writes his book, by, Not By Bread Alone, or By Bread Alone, whatever the hell the title was. Um, yeah, Not By Bread Alone. Yeah, Fat of the Land, yeah. There's an introduction in it right by, I think, Eugene Dubois. Again, I'm remembering stuff from 15 years ago in which he says, you know, this experiment basically means we have to rewrite what we know about nutrition because we're wrong. 
and then the war happens and nothing gets rewritten and none of this and now it's like you guys are walking around the face of the earth and nobody cares yeah, yeah it, is, think, it think, is interesting just because like you, you think of like other things like sporting events and stuff if you had someone like doing something like you know winning winning an event or breaking a record or something like that and they say well i trained this weird new way that everyone has said was wrong everyone's going to want to know what they did and look at them and watch them actually do it but when it comes to nutrition they just want to kind of don't make us do that work again <laughs> well how much how much do your 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 peers in the ultra endurance world how much are they watching what you do and you know uh yeah it's you know it's it's uh it, it get, definitely gets a lot of attention. I would say like I'm probably known just as much for my diet as I am for any of the athletic achievements I've gotten. So you can't really say that about a whole lot of other athletes. And it's, it's certainly opened up. You know, what I find interesting is it's really opened up a lot of other avenues where people in other sports, people doing other things are really interested about it um, that aren't necessarily looking to run ultra marathons or even running. And it's kind of opened up a, a community of people that I would have probably never otherwise ever known or, or had, ne they would have other, otherwise never known of me. So it's, it is kind of interesting uh, about that. I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely interest in it. I think, I think the real interesting thing is it is literally almost endurance sports nutrition flipped on its head from what a lot of people have been mm -hmm. exposed to. So the I, I I like to think about this, but you know, endurance athletes are very kind of type A regimental typically type people. So, you know, they don't like overhauling stuff too much. They they don't want to mess with their routine. So some people are more curious than others and want to try it out. Other people they'll they'll wait till something breaks till they try it out. That's funny because I had this. Uh, I was having this conversation with this uh, vegetarian blogger, <clears throat> and he was. One implication was that I, I'm not really that interested in this because I'm not willing to try a vegetarian diet to see if somehow it works better for me than a, you know, a low-carb, high-fat diet. And I'm not, you know, because what I'm doing now works. And I'm afraid mm -hmm. that if I switch over to vegetables, all vegetables, it won't work. And then I'll have to work harder to get back to where I am now. And there's no guarantee that I will get back. So there, we do tend to get trapped. If we find something that we think works, we're tempted to stay there without doing the work to find out if something else works better. Yeah. And I think too, like one thing when it comes to diet and nutrition with, especially with the stuff that I'm doing, it's, some of these folks, they can kind of mask a bad diet for at least long enough because of how active they are too. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's less like a last resort type of situation in a lot of cases. And it's more like a few more things have to go wrong first before I start wanting to do anything differently. And, you know, that's, I, I think about that with just the last hundred years in general too. And it's like, you know, a hundred years ago, you couldn't afford to be eating stuff that made you feel so shitty that you couldn't like go out and work hard for the next day or two. Now you kind of can, like you have to be just functional enough to be able to sit at an office chair. So sometimes Sean and I've talked about this on a bunch of other podcasts too. It's like, you can kind of normalize feeling subpar and think that that's how you're supposed to feel. And I think we see that sometimes with people that, I mean, Sean sees it all the time, probably on meatheels.com where 
people are just so surprised at how good they feel because they just had never felt that good before. It's been so long since they felt that good that it's like they want to share it with everyone because they think they, they just, um, you know, discovered this new, this new fancy thing that changes everything for them. Well, this is what, one of the reasons why people like us tend to look like quacks is because you tend to be, you, you, you go through your life with some chronic disorder, whether it's, you know, uh, mood disorders or, or overweight, and then you find something that fixes it and you want to tell people. But in medicine, that's not supposed to matter because it could have been a placebo effect. So you're supposed to be restrained and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to actually tell you what I did, but I'm going to find money to fund a clinical trial or something. Um, yeah, I am fascinated by this idea that I could, you know, if I, I, you know, maybe if my wife decides to go traveling for a month, I'll do the meat thing. And uh, well. <laughs> We'll see how, you know, what feeling healthy really feels like. Again, my latest book is in part derived from interviews I did with over 100 physicians and dietitians who prescribe low-carb, high-fat diets. And often they would use it, you know, they would say people get to feel what it feels like to be healthy. And they'd never felt that before. They haven't felt it in 20 years. And I couldn't, if you don't know what it feels like, you don't know if you're not feeling that. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I, you know, I thought I was fairly healthy and then, and then, you know, like I said, I thought, you know, digesting a certain way was supposed to feel a certain way. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's like, feels a lot better. And you, you just kind of, you're not, you're, you're not sure yet. And so, it's so I'm, kinda... I'm sure you've told this story dozens of times on your podcast, but how did you transition to how and why to all meet? You know, I was, I was on a ketogenic diet. I'd been on it for about two and a half years. It was doing pretty well, but I just started reading about people doing it and re and more, I was more interested in my rowing performance. I, I saw that it, people in the past had used a lot of meat, you know, and, and particularly like old time bodybuilders had used that for strength improvement. And I thought, well, I'll try it for 30 days. And I did it and I didn't die. You know, I made a joke on Twitter. I said, what am I going to die? I'm scurvy. My colon's <laughs> going to fall out of my arteries are going to clog up. You know, none of that happened. So when the 30 days was over, I went back to my ketogenic diet and I just didn't feel as good. I, I started seeing like I'd had a little bit of so soreness in my back came back. My digestion wasn't as good. And I was like, you know, all things being equal, I'd rather just feel good. And then, you know, within two months, I was setting world records on the rowing machine. So I was like, well, this so is how much did you rowing? Because you realize, like I told you this, like I basically got my knee replaced just right. to improve my rowing times. And I may never now get back to where I was. But the original thinking was, if I had two functional legs, right, that's got to help my rowing. How much did your times improve? So about 8% from from keto to, to uh so I calculated the wattage because rowing is done in wattage. And so I'd had the, I'd had the U S record uh, for the 500 meter was, I think I said it around 116.5 when I turned 49, I took two more seconds off of that down to 114.5 when I turned 50. And I mean, that's a, that's an 8% percentage increase in the wattage at already a, a world record. And that was a world, a U.S. record. And I think it might've been a world record at that time for certainly it was a U.S. record. So that's a pretty significant improvement at that and it's, it's not like I was naive to training or some guy that just had never lifted yeah. weights before. I've been doing this for 40 years. And so that's a pretty remarkable, uh, you know, jump 8%. You know, if you, if you, if you look at somebody who breaks a world record and say, you want to go 8% faster. That, that's, I'm thinking I did a 127. Three right. That's not I, bad. That's not a bad no, time. And that was at uh, 59. 
That's good. Yeah, that's very good. And I think I told you this. I was on try. I just jumped on the machine in my uh, father-in-law's house. I hadn't really bothered. And I were on the East Coast, so I could work out in the mornings. It's a different. <laughs> anyway, I was kind of stunned that I did this without training. So then I spent a year thinking, okay, I could move this to 125 with training. And it, I never bested the 127.3. But now at 62, if I could get close to that again with meat, I would do it. My marriage would suffer, though. My marriage would definitely suffer. Well, you might be able to clandestinely do it. Just, you know, you could just kind of <laughs> secretly give the broccoli to the dog or something like that. Or, you know, it might be. Well, funny because the dog, we get this, uh, there's a, you know, hip uh, butcher shop restaurant about a couple miles from me in Oakland and they make dog food. And uh, so I buy it for the, uh, the dog and the dog, you know, re religiously eats it all and then leaves two pieces of carrots in it. And I think, okay, this dog knows what he's doing. He's not too smart in any other way in life, but nutritionally, he knows enough to avoid the carrots. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. You, you see, with little kids too, the same thing. You've got these kids that inherently know that, uh, you know. And, and I just wonder, you know, if, if they, if there's just not this innate sort of sensing well, this, that is, this is not good for us. Always one of my questions: If green vegetables are so damn good for us, why don't kids like them? You know, I mean, if they, they should, and I get it that you don't want, maybe the idea is that children who like green vegetables were children who were wandering around in the woods, getting snatched up by neighboring tribes and, you know, eating poisonous mushrooms by mistake and stuff like that. So they, as you mature, you develop a taste for, and that's, you know, you get old enough that you get the tribal wisdom about what mm. shrubs you can eat and what shrubs you can't eat. But still, it seems like we should want to eat those foods when we're young, because if those kids are going to be healthier, they have a survival advantage. You know, I just, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, what would have been foraging strategies back then, I mean, there's almost no calories, you know, in a green vegetable for the most part. Leaves have right. no caloric value. So what, and they're typically very bitter and, and not particularly good tasting until we at least um, cultivate hybrids. But I mean, what would have been the, the incentive for someone to eat those 50,000 years ago? I don't really know. Maybe maybe to make themselves throw up or something like that, perhaps. Well, or perhaps when you're hunting that woolly mammoth, something to chew on to. But yeah, it does, it's, it's a good point. This eating leaves thing that's supposed to be, you know, again, I don't know. Um, do you think it makes any difference grass fed versus, I mean, aside from the ethical issues, if you were to switch over for three months and eat nothing but factory farmed meat, do you think you would feel a difference? You know, it's, that is an interesting question. And I think we, we do need to sort of, you know, there's been one, one or two studies that Texas A&M and Texas A&M university did in the like 2010 where they took ground beef that was either grass finished or, mm. you know, conventionally grain finished. And they looked at biomarkers, so it's, you know, you, you, biomarkers are never a good study in my view. They looked at like right. HDL, LDL, triglycerides, and I think there might have been blood pressure in there. And actually the grain finish came out slightly better, not, not right. significant. From all the people I've observed, and I've observed thousands of them, I cannot ascertain a, enough of a difference to, to make a global recommendation. There are certainly a subset of people will say, I feel better on grain finish or I feel better on grass finish. But to globally say that one works better than other, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And, and then it's interesting because, you know, if I, if I, if you take someone who's eating a standard American diet or even a healthy and balanced diet and put them on a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet, I know what health 
benefits to expect them to have. You know, you can, and again, this is the thing, and it's sort of, you know that their bodies will transform and they'll get healthier. And yeah, maybe their LDL will go up and maybe that'll kill them prematurely. We don't know about that, but we do know that they will get healthier in the short run as long as they eat that way. And then if that was, but switching them then from grass-fed to grain-fed, am I going to expect to see them get unhealthier if I don't measure anything? Like biomarkers. And if I do measure biomarkers, what am I going to see? Am I going to see that their LDL is now oxidized? And does that mean they're going to die prematurely? Maybe. But, um, you know, and again, this is one of the areas where I don't even think the science can answer these questions ultimately. I mean, I don't think anyone should eat factory farm meat because of what they do to the animals. But other than that, I have no idea. I just don't know if it's healthy or not. And then somebody like you would be an interesting test case. Like you could do it for three months and see if your growing times decrease by, you know, a half a percent. Yeah, there's, there's actually a gal that, that has done that experiment. She's, she did a month of, uh, I think it was, I think she did a month of grain fed and a month of grass fed. And she got her omega three, omega six ratios tested. She's going to send those to me to see, but, uh, Outside of that, there's not a lot of information. I mean, I've literally not seen anyone that has, I just can't, I, I see basically the equal amount of health benefits, you know, people with their arthritis going away or their depression going away or whatever, whatever anecdotal stuff we right. see. I, I don't see a difference between the two different groups at this point, but, but it would be a good question to, to ask. And, uh, you know, I think the ethical question, the ethical stuff around farming as you know we've delved more and more into that I've, I've gotten very interested in that obviously for, for for reasons that i get keep get asked about it i think it's more it, it's it's not as black and white as you might think it is you know i mean these these animals that go to a feedlot they're not suffering you know and, and again we have to we have to recognize that cattle are different from pigs and sheep and uh and chickens right uh so it's 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 not that easy of a even an ethical question in my mind well, that's what, yeah, I find the ethical questions always complex. Um, it's funny, I drive down when you live in uh, Oakland, California, where I do, and you go to LA, you go down the, the Highway 5, which is one of the dullest uh, highways in America. I mean, it really gives Kansas a run for its money. And uh, every time we pass cattle, I'm always looking to see if they look like they're having fun. Um, and really enjoying their life. They're always eating. They're either sitting down or eating, whether they're sitting in the feedlots, which you pass and smell, or whether you see them on the fields. Um, the feedlots, we assume that they, those are less humane because they smell terrible, and the cattle are packed in there, but the cattle seem to be doing the same thing one way or the other. It's very naive. I, I get nervous even talking about this because I could not be more naive on the subject of animal ethics and animal state of mind but uh you know what i think about is i often got criticized for not telling people to eat uh free-range animals and i don't want uh, if if you can't afford free-range meat pasture raised eggs then i don't want people eating pasta instead if they want to get healthy yeah, I think that's a very fair point because, you know, most people can't afford it. And if you've got to make the decision between the box of potato chips or, you know, cheap ground beef, I, I'd say go with the ground beef every time. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a fair, you yeah. know, a fair way to look at, look at it. Gary, let me know what's, so the, the title of your book 
that you that you're working on now is going to be what when's it going to be done when's it going to be released when can we get a hold of it and then let us know what else you got coming up so that people want to want to follow what's going on with you okay the working title at the moment is how to think about how to eat i think we'll stick with that one um with the subtitle explaining that this is about uh and the subtitle will be something like a healthy weight manifesto and instruction manual. Um, the, uh, the argument, again, I'm making is, you know, we get advice, uh, all this epidemiological advice, all the eat less, you know, eat Mediterranean diet. That's all lean people diet advice. You know, these are all thin people who think that, you know, fat people just ate less, they'd be thin too. So we could tell them to eat what we think is a healthy diet, just eat less of it and everyone will be fine. And so I want to kind of lay out the argument in this book about why those of us who end up on, you know, ketogenic diets do so because it's what appears to be our only route to being really healthy. You know, if I could be really healthy eating potato chips, I'd do it. Well, I was never that much of a fan of potato chips. If I could do it eating Snickers bars, I'd do it. Um, Anyway, that book, I hope to have it done in the next month with luck. If I do get it done in the next month, it might be out by the end of the year. Um, my editor has to like it. I have one of the best editors in publishing. Um, not quite the book I promised him when I got the, uh, the advance. So, uh, you know, the contract is for a slightly different book. So there's a possibility that he'll flip out when he reads it and says, we can't publish this, write something else. Uh, part of the risk benefits of uh, being a writer. Um, when I'm done with that, I hope to get back to NUSI and a clinical trial that I'd like to get funded. Um, NUSI has been in a state of kind of suspended animation for the past year and a half. Um, we do have funding and we still have, you know, it's a kind of virtual organization with a few people scattered around the country. Uh, a few, a couple of them get paid. I don't. Um, it's my hobby, the Nutrition Science Initiative, and um, there's still studies I think need to be done that could help shed light on this problem uh, that nobody else is willing to fund. So if we can raise money from what's known as ultra high net worth individuals, that's what we're going to do. But I have to get my book out of the way first. My kid's college education depends on it. So it's assuming they get off Fortnite long enough to, to go to college. <laughs> Oh, they'll make millions playing video games like all the kids are these days. <laughs> you know, it's, now we have another hour of conversation in front of yeah. us. I mean, I was saying when I was a kid, you know, you grew up, you wanted to be an astronaut or a scientist. Because that's, those were the heroes in the 60s. That's what you read about, you know. And we watched the, the, the space program. I literally went to college wanting to be an astronaut and studied astrophysics because of it. Um, Kids today grow up wanting to be billionaires or YouTube stars or video game players because that's what they see. That's what they do. That's what it's their feet. And I guess as a parent, I should be content with that. But, um, yeah, the world has changed. And just what, the, what our children see of the world is very different now than what it was when we were younger. And uh, you can't control it. It just is what it is. And... Uh, Hopefully they'll be good at video games if that's the route they take. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Gary. We uh, will look forward to getting this one out to our listeners. Uh, yeah. If you have anything else you want to want to plug on your way out, go for it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm plug free. 
Are you, hey, Gary, what, what kind of uh, conference – are you going to do some talks the rest of the year? Uh, well, I'm doing the Rogan thing. I'm doing Denver Low Carb, where we'll also have a discussion with uh, Darius Mosafarian, the head of the nutrition department at Tufts, which should be interesting because uh, dairy in some ways thinks sort of the closest in the uh, – conventional academic research world to thinking the way I do. And yet he does so based on his epidemiology. So we have fundamental differences as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, a low carb conference, maybe in Israel. They're not a lot set up so far this year. Um, but uh, the next thing is definitely low carb Denver. Oh, and then the Seattle low carb meeting in early May. Yeah, I think I'm I'm going to be I'm actually talking at the Seattle one, and so I, and I'll be at the one. There's a carnivore one preceding the low carb Denver one by right. like a day, and so I'm going to speak at that, and then I'll I think I'll try to swing by the low carb one in uh, Denver for a day or so and kind of hang out and see what's, what's going on there. So I'll run into. Funny, that. I was trying to get into Denver early enough on the day of the carnivore meeting that I could go down to Boulder and give a talk in Boulder that evening and then go back to Denver. And I just, I can't get a flight in that makes that too, not too risky. Okay. So we talked Amber and, uh, uh, you know, we were all talking about trying to get me into Boulder in time to give a talk that night and I just can't make it work. So. Well, it'll be interesting. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Gary. Uh, like I said, uh, I'll let you know in about 10 years, one way or the other. <laughs> We'll read about it if it doesn't work. That's right, exactly. <laughs> okay, right, thank you guys. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.